if I am not for myself, who will be for me? And being only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when will I embrace the void? virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine falling so slow. Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional. I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Friends, episode 177 of Embrace the Void, where nothing we can do will please the void, and that's okay. I am your host, Aaron, and this week is a conversation building off of a letter wiki exchange I had with Josh over the past year. I've linked the letter in the show notes. It is not required reading to enjoy the episode, but certainly added uh, context. So let's pray for some good ethics. Well, life ends in death, which we as a species are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Rabbi Josh Uter. Josh uh, and I had a really enjoyable letter wiki exchange on religion and secular ethics, and I thought it would be fun to have Josh on to do a bit of a debrief from that conversation. So, Josh, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. How you doing? It's great to have you on. It's fun to hear your voice after all of our exchanges. Yeah. And same. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, I also love that intro about saying hi to the void because most rabbis who had a pulpit and give sermons feel that way from time to time. You know, if you're just getting out speaking, you can see people with their, you know, glassed over faces, not really paying attention, but you got to keep doing it and mm-hmm. selling it anyway. So <laughs> mm-hmm. I appreciate yes, the idea. It is definitely. Right. Whatever, whatever performative sphere anybody has been in, if you've ever tried to perform in front of people, you've understood what it's like to try to uh, engage with the void in that way. Yeah. Good. So, yeah, why don't we before we get into the letter, why don't you tell folks a little bit about sort of your rabbinical trajectory, as it were, um, what sort of where on the rabbinical spectrum you fall in terms of beliefs and how you feel like you got to where you are? So my path is a little bit complicated, uh, mostly because it's entirely based off of my father. My father was not raised observant, and he gradually became observant, uh, was affiliated with the uh, conservative movement for a while, was a conservative rabbi for many years, was a writer for many things in that movement, and he left in the late 80s, early 90s. But a lot of his arguments that he had for leaving are kind of the same arguments he has against Orthodox. Uh, For those who may 
may be unfamiliar with uh, uh, American Jewish denominationalism, it can get a bit tricky and a bit convoluted. So I'd say, mm -hmm. you know, by social affiliation, I would say modern Orthodox. I've never been thrilled with that term, largely because, as a few other people have pointed out, if you are a committed Jew and you believe that you ought to follow the rules as defined by Torah or Halacha, the Jewish legal system, there are going to be times when people who are socially affiliated Orthodox may not necessarily be keeping them. And sometimes you have this weird uh, equation, a false equation, I think, well, if you're Orthodox, it must mean you're keeping all the rules correctly. And that's not necessarily the case. So like personally, I preferred the idiom of Shomer Torah, which is trying to keep things as best as possible. And for the most part, that puts me in the you know, orthodox broader sphere. Uh, the rest of the denominationalism gets very, again, gets very tricky. And even within the orthodox world, uh, my father, and I guess by extension myself, were always like kind of on the margins of certain things because something I picked up from my father is a whole bunch of people make these grand proclamations or these grand claims about what they do and how they operate, but they don't really keep to their own rules. And that's been a recurring thing that I've just been attuned to notice. And it happens in the Orthodox world as much as in the other, you know, other denominations as well. Could you, so, could you give a concrete example for the Gentiles just to help folks out a little bit on like, what's, what's one case where you feel like these things get confused and where maybe you parted ways some with other folks? Uh, oh, nothing that I think would make sense to uh, a Gentile audience, because uh, then, we, yeah, <laughs> you know, we, we'd really be getting into you know the hardcore details of things. Um, I'd say one, and mm -hmm. this I think is very relevant to our discussion, is over the questions of authority, and that within the Jewish world, something that I've noticed and picked up from my father is people can be very, if not dishonest, uh, very unaware about inconsistent claims that they make and what an appeal to authority is. So just for one example, mm -hmm. I gave a 30-part class in my synagogue on the halachic process and trying to work through systematically how Jewish law works with authority being the recurring theme. And in the very first class, mm -hmm. I cited a three or four major uh, authorities that people like to cite where normal practice doesn't follow them. And I cited that to say, well, if you go to someone and say, well, why do we do that? They'll say someone like Maimonides said so. And that's the answer. Well, that's an appeal to authority. And then I have to ask, well, why do you follow Maimonides here and not there? In which case, it's not because Maimonides says so. There's something else that's motivating your decision. Right? right. And I don't think a lot of people are aware to this. And I've seen this even with appeals to great rabbis where people will say, well, you have to listen to the great rabbis. Like, OK, well, how can you listen to this person here and not there? And then you get no true Scotsman arguments. Like I heard one of my mm -hmm. teachers said, no great rabbi would say X, Y or Z. And I said, well, you know, this <laughs> big guy said X, Y or Z. He said, well, ah, you see, that just proves he's not a great rabbi. Um, and people are just very... I, even if you know they may be partially aware of these things, there's very little uh, thought that I've encountered of people who have thought through these issues to the point where they could present it, uh, you know, define and defend a coherent system about how they make decisions. And I think a lot of people don't want to because once you set up those rules, you're going to have to, you know, come to certain decisions you personally might not want to. And even within the Orthodox world, I've seen this from the more parochial side and also from the more liberal progressive side, uh, where there's a lot of 
what tools can you use to get to the conclusion you want, which is not something you're supposed to do. Um, but you know the justifications that people give. You know, you you hold up two things next to each other, and you're like, "How?" And then other people try to come up with some you know reconciliation about, "Oh, you know, this is why this is okay, and that's not okay," because no one wants to appeal to things like, "Oh, you know, there was some political issue involved or whatnot." Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. this is something I've been attuned to for a very long time. And when my father left the conserve movement, uh, I even posted his letter of resignation. Um, you know, he said, "You know, you in his view." point, uh, he said, you make claims to be a halachic organization, meaning follow Jewish law, which incidentally, the reform movement does not. So when we have these discussions, like there's a very big difference, I think, there between where you place yourself and what claims you make. And my father said, well, you know, you're not actually following your own rules or system here. You're just following whatever, you know, the liberal ethos happens to be of the day. And that was his assessment, largely why he left, because he said, you know, you're you know, you make these claims about how you operate, but this isn't how you're actually operating. So there's a lot there. Let me ask, first of all, so I'm getting the impression that maybe you're in favor of some sort of model of justification that is more than just appeals to authority, right? You're being critical about these sort of ending with the appeal to authority. Do you have in mind some kind of further framework that distinguishes you know, when to appeal to a particular authority or what is actually a good or bad authority? So I'm not sure that we can ever avoid an appeal to authority, even within Judaism. I do think that there has to be some degree of consistency and I think some degree of uh, integrity where, you know, if you have someone that says, like even Maimonides, you know, the example I gave earlier, uh, in his introduction to his code of law, he said, you follow the person who convinces you most. And the benchmark he had was, how well does this fit in with the Talmud? Um, which would be a you know, major authority, you know, one of the few that people, everyone would agree is authoritative, though we could argue to different degrees in which interpretation that gets a little bit later. But what I mean by appeal to authority is saying, this is the law because so-and-so says so. So I, I'm not sure if anyone can at, some, at any point avoid some appeal to some authority, which was kind of how you know, our letter wiki discussion went in terms of, <laughs> you know, at, at some point, I think it's inevitable, but I do think you, people ought to be consistent about it and people ought to be honest about it. And if they're going to say, well, why do you agree with someone here and not there, be able to provide some explanation for it. So even according to Maimonides, he'd be okay if you disagree with him, if you could provide the correct uh, you know, measure of proof from, say, Talmudic literature, or to say, well, you got this mm-hmm. law wrong because you know either you had a corrupt text or whatever, so we're going to do this, and you'd still be following his system. So you know, you'd be following the tradition of Maimonides, but it's not the same as you're appealing to his authority and saying everyone has to, because in a religious context, the appeal to authority is more like saying God wants you to do something. Which is a fairly, you know, important. Uh, <laughs> it's a fairly significant claim to make. So I think people should really be, you know, a lot more mindful about that. Um, and also, you could have appeals to different authorities depending on community. There are rules for that as well. Uh, all of that stuff is. I mean, if anyone wants to listen to a thirty-part class on the halachic process, you know, you're <laughs> fine to it. But we don't have time for that now. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I think those are interesting nuances to bring up about the appeal to authority and I've been doing a bunch of work recently on appeals to authority versus 
appeals to expertise and how these relate to issues like conspiracy theories. And I want to dive into that sort of stuff with you some. Uh, before we get into that, though, I, I still feel like I want to know more about where you actually are on a perspective. So it sounds like you come, your father left the conservative movement. Now, I think the outside perspective, right, the sort of generic view of Judaism would be you have the reformists on the left side. They tend to be the liberal progressives and they tend to be fairly chill in terms of what level of, of Jewry you're engaging in at a given point in time. And then on the other side, you have like the ultra Orthodox who tend to be viewed as the extremely conservative wing of the religion in that kind of way but it sounds like maybe you're saying there's a little bit more complexity to that i'm curious where do you feel like you fall on the reform to orthodox spectrum and where do you feel like you fall politically on the like conservative to progressive or however however what words would you prefer sort of for that kind of spectrum so I use the term modern orthodox, which is, you know, again, I don't like the term, but it usually describes someone who uh, would follow the orthodox rules and laws with the modern part being uh, people would define different uh, criteria from it, like um, either more open to academic studies with things, uh, not as parochial as other you know groups say to the further religious right might be. Um, that I think would be the best way of putting it, the best way I can describe right now. Politically, I you know don't really have a home. Uh, like I have been a registered independent since the late '90s, early 2000s. Uh, when I lived in New York uh, in like the '90s, when I first registered to vote, uh, I registered as Democrat only because the Republicans like didn't really exist in New York City. So like, what was the point? Um, but in terms of conservative uh, versus liberal, I I'm very skeptical of authoritarianism of any sort of thing. And it's not to say that, you know, government has no role at all. I'm just very nervous about government power in general. And in terms of the major parties, I've seen enough from both that like, I don't want any affiliation with them. Uh, I'm sure, you know, both of them, we could pick out bits and pieces like, you know, someone you know did something good, someone did something bad, but I have no allegiance or affiliation. So I'm fine saying like, yes, I dislike, you know, a thousand of your policies. This one happens to be okay. And I'd be okay with that. So I tend to look at things on a case by case basis, but it's hard for me to see any uh, either party, like really having that much integrity behind it or thinking a few steps ahead of what could possibly go wrong with your policy. Like, did you really think this through? Um, mm -hmm. It's why even if I you know, disagree with Elizabeth Warren from time to time, I respect her probably more than most of the more prominent politicians because she put does her homework. She actually sits and you know thinks things through. She may not cover every base, but like she actually cares about the craft of policy. And I wish more people did that instead of just relying on slow Tokens with you know saying oh do this and everything fine and do that everything will be fine because you're dealing mm -hmm. with a population of a few hundred million people no matter what you do you're going to benefit certain people and you're going to screw over others right you may mm -hmm. want to think about what could possibly go wrong so because of that i consider myself all over the place and yeah okay fair enough yeah i was mostly curious about sort of less party affiliation and more like uh, do you see yourself as sort of socially more progressive or more conservative? Um, but we could certainly we can get into maybe some concrete examples. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
I'd say probably um, more on the libertarianish side, only because okay. I'm not like one of the hardcore people. Like we need to dissolve government as much as I. I don't think that you know everything that government does is evil. Uh, I'm just very wary about the people in charge having that power and just not trusting them enough to say, "Yeah, we'll give you the keys to this, and I'm sure you'll do a fine job." I. I'm sure there mm. should be lines. I don't necessarily know where they are. I just have major trust issues. So <laughs> that's where I am. That's actually very interesting to me. And sorry, I keep diverting into further things before we get to our letter. But like, you know, I think there's a traditional, there's a, there's a common view on the progressive left that says that religious individuals, especially religious individuals in religions that emphasize respect for authority the way that Judaism does, tend to have a kind of broad pro-authoritarian personality, right? A kind of type A, a personality in a sense. Um, and so it's very interesting to me to hear you sort of saying, you know, you think that authority is necessary in the religious world. I'm not, I'm not even saying this is a contradiction. I think this is an understandable. There could be lots of reasonable ways you could justify a distinction where you say, you know, we're going to need appeal to authority in these kind of argumentative realms. But I'm still very skeptical of the condensing of authority into a political format or something like that. Well, I think one of the major differences is with religion. First off, one reason why I went into the rabbinate is because I knew enough from my father that I can't trust most rabbis out there. And I wanted to know the material well enough that if I had a question, I could go through the sources and be reasonably okay that I come up with a decent answer. I think with religion... At least in America, you have a greater advantage of if you don't like one synagogue or one community, you just go to another or start your own. Once you're dealing with the enforcement of the state, you remove all of those other possibilities. And now it's, you do what we think is correct, or we're going to take your money and fine you or put you in jail. And not to say that religion doesn't have its own forms of social, you know, of coercion in there as well. Um, but it's something that, you know, I am incredibly, incredibly wary of doing that. And for me, that's a bit of a distinction. I can also say a huge distinction I have for myself is these are certain rules that I think Judaism demands. Um, there can also be a huge range of possible opinions. Uh, there's an idiom in the Talmud of the four cubits of halakha. And, you know, the way that I was taught from my father is that defines an area, not necessarily a fixed point. And you could have two people who can disagree over things and both have legitimate opinions. And people in different communities may be able to have different practices and still both be okay. Uh, when you're dealing with the federal government on certain issues, you don't have that leeway or latitude, and you take away a lot of that choice. Uh, one of my teachers at Yeshiva University used to say, the only autonomy we have is the autonomy to choose our authorities, um, which you know is mm -hmm. a lot easier when you're dealing with, I'm going to follow this particular rabbi or that rabbi, as opposed to the government is telling me I have to do this or I'm going to jail. So I think, for, and also I should say that even in the rabbinic world, you know, they were kind of, well, depends where it's uh, about being wary about um, when they would enforce uh, certain coercive behaviors. But there was also a very high moral standard, or at least by Jewish standards that they would have to keep that we do not have in politics as for which we have mm -hmm. plenty of evidence along those lines. <laughs> mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So I could see, uh, yeah, I, the freedom of choice 
issue is an interesting one. My initial thought is there's probably a statistical point to be made here that most people are born and die citizens of the same country and most people are born and die members of the same religion. But I think, do think you make a good point that I could, you know, be born and die a Jewish individual, but could have gone f- through very different sort of churches or, or synagogues over the course of that time and could still see myself as Jewish while having adopted fairly different uh, views. So I guess what I'm, I'm in favor of there is like a reform America where mm-hmm. I can uh, stay in America while adopting certain reform. But that, that's, just, that's just secession at that point then, right? Well, maybe, but don't forget when questions come up about abortion, like when one state wants to prohibit it, the argument is, well, just move to another state as if it's that simple. You know, it's probably easy. Well, it depends sure. where you live. Certainly, if you live in New York City, you know, you want to change synagogues. You, know, you don't have that far to walk, really. You know, <laughs> right. But if you're talking you're about, Iowa, you know, exactly. You know, you live in Iowa, it's like, well, just move to California. Like, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right that that it's difficult. And I guess I would I would chalk that up to that's an unfortunate reality of the nature of government and so something we have to adjust for. So I think I'm sympathetic to you on that cuz I, I imagine you're not in favor of the abolishment of government entirely. You just want it to be heavily regulated and and ensure that it doesn't become tyrannical as much as possible. Yeah, I'm not I mean, sure. <laughs> like, look, I, I've read, you know, for a lot of things, you know, you're an actual academic in philosophy. I read things. So, you know, in some cases, I'm more of a dilettante, sure, but like, right. <laughs> you know, and I, I read these things and, you know, I just wish people would think through what are the logical conclusions? Uh, like Michael Walzer had a wonderful analogy of government to, you know, one possible way of viewing it is just, it's a very large family. You know, and then you could say, well, if it's just like a very large family or a very large club and people are just deciding what to do, well, is that really any different than, say, on a smaller unit, people coming up with their own rules for inclusion and exclusion? And like, why is it okay if I have certain rules in my household, but like extrapolating out to, say, you know, an apartment complex, you know, that's one thing. Extrapolating it out to a city is another. Extrapolating to a state is another than the federal government. I have no idea where these draw, where people draw these lines. I'm just more appreciative of anyone who can think three steps ahead and saying, well, here's what I prefer. Here's where things can go wrong. You know, these are things, some things we need to keep in mind or kind of control for, because you're, you're going to have to take whatever to the logical conclusion, because at some point, you know, this stuff is, you know, whatever political system you have, someone's going to find a way to game that system to their advantage. So, yeah, it's one of those weird things that, you know, after four years of Trump or during four years of Trump, when I was hearing these arguments, you know, for expansion of government to take over a whole bunch of other things, I'm like, you know, Trump is in office, right? Would you want him to have all of this sort of power over things? And if your answer is no, then maybe government shouldn't be in charge of this because you could have someone like Trump in office. And I use that example because most progressives really didn't like Trump. So. You know, I think that's fair for that internal consistency. I'm sure you may have a couple of Trump supporters listening. Maybe. <laughs> you know, it's tricky. There's a lot of complexities here for me because it's. I think you're dealing with trade-offs between uh, efficiency of scale versus loss of flexibility. So I think, mm-hmm. you know important lessons to be learned from things like the Articles of the Con- of Confederation that happened before the American Constitution, that uh, a lack of centralized state power 
uh, causes substantial problems, but it's also certainly true that the centralizing of states' power, and especially the centralizing of power within the executive branch that has happened in the modern age, is, is very disconcerting, and as we've seen over the past four years, can be a real problem depending on who is in that particular office. So yeah, I think these are all hard trade-offs, and I'm I'm very sympathetic to the view that what I want to hear from people is not, um, and here's my solution, but, and here's a solution and here are the, the costs and benefits to that solution as compared to other solutions. Yeah. And I wish more people would talk about that. And, you know, I think we would have a much better political discourse that way. And you'd force people to actually think things through and say like, yeah, no policy you have is going to be good for everyone. But when you come up with a system of here's why I think this is better for us overall, you also give us a sense of where your moral priorities lie. You know, I think by default, most people would go to some sort of utilitarianism of, you know, this is the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And you can try to quantify that. And it's not that you're unsympathetic for everyone else. But I think it's inevitable when you're dealing with so many human beings, someone's going to get left out in the cold and you don't want to do that. But that also doesn't mean that, you know, uh, you should never have any sort of policy. Uh, it might mean why I personally <laughs> don't want to be the one making those decisions. But, you know, I and I think at the very least that that's where humility comes in, you know, that no one's, no one's going to have a magic bullet that's going to help everyone because that's just going to be impossible. You know, so when we frame our politics in the realm of morals of like, this is morally right or that's morally right, you know, it's very good for riling up the base and maybe, you know, getting a couple of people to vote for you. But it's really, I don't think, a great way to govern or build a real cohesive body politic that would go along with any of these plans. But mm -hmm. yeah, we are way right. off topic. We got more in politics than the No, I know. That's great. All right, so let's shift here. Let's talk about our, our letter wiki some. So yeah. I do encourage folks to go listen, go go read through it. You can't listen to it, but you can read through it. Uh, but to, to get folks sort of a sense of what we were on about, do you want to say sort of what you viewed as your thesis statement, I guess, going into mm -hmm. our conversation? And do you feel like that thesis statement evolved or shifted at all over the course of the conversation? So my main argument was, and I think still is, that religion and secular ethics share very fundamental similarities, and that both prescribe and proscribe what peace people must and must not do. And at the end of the day, both of them appeal to some sort of authority. And whatever this authority is, can sometimes be coercive to ensure compliance or even stifle dissent at the expense of individual conscience. Meaning if you know people say this is unethical and I say it is, well, someone may you know win out and say, well, we're not going to allow you to act in the way that you think is ethical. Uh, where I think the main differences are, aside from the conclusions of how people define certain things, is how far we are removed from the claims to authority. So in Judaism, the ultimate claim is to the Bible, um, by which I mean even the rabbinic sages of the Talmud, um, which most Jews today, when they practice Judaism, uh, don't do straight out of the Bible. There was a you know group I. Think they still exist in some pockets called Karaites who reject the entire rabbinic tradition and follow straight Bible. Most Jews today follow the rabbinic interpretive and legislative tradition. Even they base their authority at some point tracing it back to Sinai, even though they personally didn't say we are in, uh, we have revelation and this is what gives us the right. They tr had to trace their authority back to Sinai. 
um, to at least that moment of revelation, even though they intentionally moved past uh, revelation as a source of authority. When it comes mm-hmm. to secular ethics, though, you know, at some point someone is declaring what is right or what is wrong using a rhetoric, um, uh, you know, a language. Uh, theory, a shared language that says these are universal principles that should apply to all people at all times, assuming we're not you know, relativists. Or, um, and, you know, you can eat. And at some point you have to say, well, why? Like, where did you get there? Where did you get that? And there could be many more steps until, you know, someone's going to say, it's like, well, you know, that's just because it is. And even if you structure rules of argumentation, then you would also have to say, well, who defined these as the rules of argumentation or this, like, you know, even the rules for having an ethical discussion had to come from somewhere. And it might've developed from some sense of consensus, but then you just have an appeal to a consensus. All right. So to me, I see these things as similar. Um, I would also say, and this is just my own thing, that for me, having a conversation about religious ethics from the point of Judaism is a little bit strange because the language of the Bible and Talmud uh, is not one really of morals or ethics in the sense that there's no word that says, you know, you know, this is what morality is. Uh, the modern day w- uh, word for value in the Bible is used for uh, financial value, and rabbinic Hebrew is used more for financial value than it is for what we would call ethical values. That isn't oh, to say that. For a really anti Semitic joke that I'm not going to make, but that's, that's, oh. that's some really strong bait you've thrown out there. No, go ahead. Keep well, possibly, yeah. You know, in retrospect, yeah, I, I can kind of see that. But like, you know, the, the main um, language is one of, you know, commandments, statutes, uh, legislation, decrees, that sort of thing, which doesn't mean that there may not be some motivation, you know, that people can read into it, or there may not have been some value behind certain decisions. But that's a very different framing than saying, these are Jewish values that override everything else. Uh, and the whole language of Jewish values, I think, has been you know, almost a way of, um, I, I once described it as the flip side of something in Hebrew called Das Torah, which is when people on the more parochial side may intuit, here's what the, um, you know, here's what the Torah you know, really means, regardless of what the statute says, because there's some higher order principle, you know, that overrides everything else. And I think Jewish values kind of works the same way, where you may take a law and say, well, here's the value embedded in this. I'm going to extrapolate from that value a apply it all over, you know, the Torah, even at the uh, point of negating other things that the Torah says explicitly. Um, So even the idea of like an ethics, you know, there's a separate role, whatever the religious ethics of Judaism are, I think there's a lot more nuance there, both in terms of, I mean, mostly how we define what is ethics in terms of, is there a general ethic that's universal or is ethics more descriptive of the way a society behaves as opposed to an appeal to some universal authority about how a society ought to behave? I hope that made sense. (laughs) Yeah. This was something that I think I wrestled with some in the letters where I struggled to understand and a part of this may just be that like I have an ethicist riddled mind where mm. I see everything through a lens of ethics and so it's it's just sort of weird to me to suggest that you have this tradition that is very clearly telling people what they ought to do and ought not to do but it's not claiming that those are moral oughts in the kind of way that I think of 
them. And it's it's strange, I think, partly to me because, you know, growing up in a society that's heavily saturated by Christian ideology, Christianity, it feels to me, makes no such similar distinction. I think they very clearly feel that they are making moral claims that are arising out of, you know, the view, the, the, the divine will or however we want to cash out their their meta ethics um so it's it's tricky for me i guess to understand what is judaism doing if not sort of taking ethical principles and trying to hash out how to apply them through the lenses of you know the talmud and these all these other kinds of Mm -hmm. resources um does that make sense Oh, very much so. And I will say that, you know, my opinion is by, by no means the uh, popular opinion that's out there. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, I say this, like, I've had to use just to have conversations with people, the language of Jewish values. I even contributed once to a website called Jewish Values Online. Um, uh, The way that, and, you know, there are many, many, you know, bigger, prominent, more prominent Jewish rabbis who do speak in terms of the ethical. My own sense, um, which, you know, I'd have to spend a lot of time to develop is that Judaism is more deontological than the rest, you know, that, than other options, which is not to say that you don't have some room uh, for consequentialist ethics or virtue ethics, but they would still have to go through the framework of the rules of the system, uh, which is why I would stress the deontological part. Uh, just to give one example, uh, there was... Um, I think it's in the uh, Jerusalem Talmud, I'm forgetting the citation offhand, uh, where someone had complained to a rabbi about how uh, stealing from Gentiles was permitted. And on the fly, the rabbi made a decree, stealing from Gentiles is prohibited. Right. So there you, you could say, well, there, you know, there seemed to have been an ethical issue that needed correcting. But the question isn't, well, I'm going to make this claim. You still have to go through the formal process in order to correct many of these issues. Um, and this is assuming, uh, and I think this came up in our conversation as well. You know, when you think about the uh, contrast between ethics and ethical challenges within Judaism, you know, the way that um, the way that I see it is, you have your bigger challenges when. Judaism or the religion commands you to do something that you think is unethical. If something is permitted and you think this is unethical, you don't have to do it, right? You know, um, you know, maybe you could say, well, the Torah is telling me I'm not allowed to do something where I think is a moral ought. Um, you know, that could be a little bit trickier. But like when it, the examples I give for things like this are, you know, slavery. You, you have the Bible does permit certain forms of slavery. And even if I could offer some degree of apologetics from the Talmud about how, yes, it was slavery, but, you know, it wasn't as bad as a lot of other systems, including, you know, the antebellum South, by conventional post-Enlightenment ethical standards, it still fails. It may fail with like a 60 instead of a 20, but you're still failing. Now, if I find slavery abhorrent, you know, I just won't do it. Um, And there are even... I think there may even be within Judaism some religious role in order to make such additional prohibitions. There's uh, an idiom that gets thrown around a lot called Chilul Hashem, desecration of God's name. And this means two things. Uh, People are more familiar with the idea that it's um, when, uh, based off of a Talmudic definition, 
that it's when Jews do something that makes people look down upon Judaism. So it would be a case where, um, you know, someone, you know, you, you find this with uh, Jews who get caught up in big scandals and how it's a Hashem because people look down upon Jews for doing this sort of thing. And that's even when the thing might be permitted by Jewish law. But if it's permitted and it would cause, you know, this backlash, well, yeah, that may be something to avoid. The other definition of Chilul Hashem is that it refers to violating actual commandments and obligations in the Torah. And the real question is, what happens when those two things conflict? When you fulfilling what you consider to be your religious obligation causes other people to look down on you. And you know, then you've got the story of Hanukkah and all that sort of thing. So I think that's where, you know, when it comes up to certain things, I do think that you have built into the Jewish system ways of saying, yes, this is technically permitted by Jewish law, but no, we're not going to do it. And if you don't want to use the language of ethics, you could just as easily say you use the language of Hilul Hashem to put that under a religious framework and sort of work in whatever the, whatever the ethics of your community are through the back door that way. Yeah, so I guess that that then feels a little strange to me because then it sounds like what we're doing is sort of a kind of secular ethics in a proxy format of the language of Judaism or something. So, you know, it, it sounds like you're saying that you genuinely would acknowledge that there can be conflicts between what I would call sort of ethics that isn't arising out of the Jewish tradition, but could be, you know, justified within it or not. Um, and then the kinds of rules that are laid down in Judaism. So like, what do we do? What do you feel like we should be doing in situations where, um, you know, the, the Jewish tradition either commands something that seems deeply unethical to us or prohibits something that seems deeply ethical to us? How do we reconcile those kinds of conflicts in this model? So that depends, I think, on people's inclinations. And you know, believe me, there is a whole lot of literature on this with Judaism and ethics. Um, if your listeners are academics, you can check out JSTOR and ProQuest and all that stuff. There's no shortage of information about how to wrestle with these conflicts. Uh, so I should say here, you know, everything that I say, you know, both now un until now and from now on is just my own personal opinion, my own understanding. I'm not speaking for, you know, all Jews, let alone, you know, Orthodox Jews, like, this is just me. Um, you know, I think just on a social level, a lot depends on what we mean by how do we address these things. And here's what I mean. Uh, when people would ask me questions, I could only say, here's what I think Jewish law demands. Uh, here's what Jewish law prohibits. At the end of the day, I operate under the assumption people are going to do whatever it is that they want to do anyway. And then the question is, what do you do about it? So I can say, according to Jewish law, you have to do this. Assuming we had a full court system, you know, if you violate this, here's what the punishment is, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the mm. day, I'm also not God. I'm not the one who, you know, gets to, I say gets to, I'm not the one passing judgment on people's souls in terms of, you know, righteousness or not righteousness. It's, there are guidelines. There are guidelines and there are consequences and communal consequences. There are some communities that have, I would say, different standards for what is acceptable and for what is not acceptable. Um, you know, I, the way that I phrase is that, you know, all communities have their orthodoxies and all, or, all communities have their heresies. It's just a matter of which ones. Um, 
you know, so you know, just to give a couple of examples here, in an Orthodox community, people might say, well, if I'm not fully observant, I'm not going to be welcome here. I also have heard from several Reformed friends of mine who were very alienated from their synagogues because of their hard left political turn. I don't mean this necessarily in the entire Reform movement as a whole. I don't belong there, so I can't really speak for them. But I can say friends have found that within their own respective communities, right? So if you went to certain Reformed synagogues with a MAGA hat or a MAGA shirt, I'd suspect you might get thrown out for wearing that, you know, just as you know, you might get thrown out for wearing other stuff in another community. Um, so I think at that point, it more becomes where do communities draw their lines for what is an acceptable, um, I would say transgression, but where do they draw their uh, boundaries for inclusion and where do they draw their boundaries for exclusion? Because every single community is going to have them. And as you're on an individual level in terms of what can you do about it, if you find yourself in a community where you find yourself on the outside, one option is you pushed for changes in the community, or two, you try to create another community, which happens a whole bunch of times too. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to do it on a micro community level. Like if you want to start your own synagogue, go right ahead. But I can say that there are people who push within Orthodox Judaism to have certain ideas, beliefs, practices, whatever, more acceptable uh, to the larger community such that they don't have to make these choices, that it becomes more just the norm of what people do. Um, and that's you know really a case-by-case -case basis depending on who people are. And when it comes to even advocating for change, you know that can be a very, very tricky thing. Uh, at least with the Orthodox community, I found a lot of times it's not always what is said, but rather who is saying it. Um, I gave a uh, class about this a while ago on uh, something to do with divorce, uh, setting up um, a form of a prenuptial agreement to um, either facilitate, encourage some way to ensure that within the Jewish uh, divorce system, a woman who can only be divorced with the consent of her husband will not be stuck by an abusive husband who holds up the divorce for various financial or psychological means and whatnot. Uh, so there was a proposal that came out, I believe, I try to remember if it was in 48 or 58 uh, by Rabbi Saul Lieberman, very prominent rabbi affiliated with the conservative movement that wasn't accepted by the Orthodox. And in the 90s, um, it started coming out from more the Orthodox uh, community, a prenuptial agreement that I should say isn't accepted by the more parochial side, but in the more modern side has become not only accepted, but many rabbis, uh, including myself, won't do a wedding unless there is one um, unless it's done with this halachic prenup. And when I you know, did this class comparing what the original proposal was to what, you know, what came out in the 90s, it seems like if you want to say that the earlier problem, uh, the earlier solution was problematic, fine, but they were easy fixes. Like the differences between, you know, in the 40, 50 years, in my mind, was so relatively trivial. Um, but you had so much internal uh, or not internal, you had so much denominational politics in play that even if you have a good idea that comes from the wrong person or the wrong side, it's not going to be accepted uh, for one reason or the other. And, you know, people will look at, I think, the validity of a statement based on you know, who says it. And, you know, to people's credit, that's not always without some justification because, 
you know, people have different standards for what makes a good claim, what makes a valid claim and, you know, what sources you cite, how you cite them and all sorts of things like that. So there's a lot of mm -hmm. internal politicking there as well in terms of trying to force or push towards some changes within the religion. Sometimes it happens naturally. You know, sometimes, you know, you have activists who, you know, really try pushing for things. And, you know, I'm not sure if there's always a consistent answer for that. Interesting. I'm curious. So it seems like a lot of what you were saying there was leaning towards like, you might be better off sort of creating your own community if you feel like your views are not being adequately represented in the prior community. I'm curious, do you, is there a line that you draw for yourself where you would feel like if someone splits off because they reject policy X or idea X or something like that, that, you know, I'm fine with them splitting off, but I wouldn't necessarily view them as still being part of the Jewish tradition. You know, the way that, right, for example, Christians will say that Mormons are not Jewish because they don't, or not, not Christian because they don't believe in uh, the Trinity in the right kind of way or something like that. Do you have, or do you feel like creating those kinds of boundaries between who counts as Jewish and who doesn't is, is missing the point? Um, well, I don't think it's missing the point. Um, I should also add that there does happen to be a you know prohibition about you know just starting new communities. Um, you know, don't make for yourself like different little groups there. So I should also say there that that's really not a good thing. Um, on the other hand, you know the the first uh, class that I even recorded uh, when I was at my synagogue I used to record classes was on what I call the politics of exclusion, which going from biblical times through modern times, uh, cases or just uh, that someone was still considered Jewish, but was considered outside the community. Um, and I'd like to make a small distinction with what you said there in terms of, you know, there's a distinction within Jewish rabbinic law, even biblical, I think, between identity and inclusion, mm -hmm. meaning someone can be mm -hmm. Jewish, have that uh, state of a halachic identity of so-and-so is Jewish, but could also be excluded from a community for a whole variety of reasons. Um, I think I'm trying to remember the number. Maimonides, I think, listed something like 24 uh, reasons why someone can be excommunicated, right? That would be a form of you know, social exclusion. In terms of my own practice, um, the motto of my synagogue when I was there, and this was even before I got there, was all are welcome, all will feel welcome. And my approach to there was, you know, this is our synagogue. These are the rules of the synagogue. You, everyone is free to come, free to participate, knowing what the rules are. Um, and, you know, with that, you're always going to be welcome and, you know, would accommodate as you know, much as possible, you know, within that legal system. And there are other groups that do try to take that open perspective. Like we were compared a lot with Chabad. That's very big about if you're Jewish, we're going to bring you in and, you know, whatever. But, you know, they have that sense of when it comes to, you know, Jewish um you know, inclusion or exclusion, they're more towards the inclusive side in terms of bringing people in, even if in the internal community, they may have, you know, different or stricter standards. Uh, in terms of identification of who is a Jew, that's also something where everyone is going to have their dividing lines about who is included and who is excluded. And I think that's inevitable in any community because that's the definition of a community of here's who's in, here's who's out. Should that be you know, the most important thing? Eh, that's a bit harder to say. I think these days, one reason why identity has become 
Well, I shouldn't say that. Identity has been an issue for a very long time in the Jewish community, uh, largely with uh, the state of Israel having the right of return, where whoever is Jewish mm-hmm. is entitled to automatic citizenship. Well, then you ask, well, who is a Jew and by whose standards? And these were politics that have gotten into the Orthodox world as well, particularly over whose conversions to Judaism are valid. I think, at mm-hmm. least from what I've seen online, if you're talking about online discourse as a means of rhetor- uh, you know, mode of rhetoric, I think I, because identity has taken on such a greater role in rhetoric in terms of the basis for someone's argument, then it also becomes a bigger target for being challenged. So, you know, if someone says uh, there's, you know, even a meme that some people have done of like hashtag as a Jew, where people say as a Jew, I believe, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, what does your identity of a Jew have to do with this? Like, you know, that it doesn't really seem to make sense. Or even more so, you have tons of rabbis who's, who will use as a rabbi this or as a rabbi that. And if you're going to base your entire argument on, well, the fact that you're a rabbi, well, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if people would then turn around and say, well, if this is your basis, meaning, you know, you're, you're relying on your sense of authority, if people then start questioning, you know, whatever identity you're, you've given yourself. And this isn't just within Judaism. You know, I've seen, I mean, going back to, you know, the African-American community, you had Uncle Tom's, where people would challenge the identity of, you know, people who thought differently. Uh, the Advocate had a piece a while back on Peter Thiel that said something like, there's a difference between having sex with men and being gay. Uh, because he didn't have the right politics, so you know, I I, I think that you know there there yeah, is always black, good... I think was by right, and, and there was a whole other discussion with that that you know, goes back to England, and, but things along those lines where, and I really think that only come that comes up. I don't think it's new, but I think it comes up a lot more these days as identity becomes an integral part of people's rhetorical arguments and as the source for their own authority or expertise or whatever. Um, and I think that's where things get a bit more complicated. But yes, you know, there is a th- like if I did not check if someone came into my synagogue, you know, are you Jewish or are you not Jewish? Um, you know, it's like people come in, they say they're Jewish, like, okay. Uh, the times where I think most rabbis in the Orthodox world would check to see if someone is Jewish when it comes to things like status issues of like someone wants to get married. So you know, even if you have someone, you know, been in your synagogue for a bunch of years, so you may like, you know, just pro forma say like, oh, you know, can you have your, you know, bring in your parents' marriage document or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I want to, I want to get more concrete with this because, and maybe we can, hopefully this will sort of bridge us into discussing this idea of everyone requires appeals to authority a little bit, but with a, a sort of concrete founding. One issue that I, I brought up in the letters, and I'm still a little ambiguous on your position about it, is the issue of Judaism and gay marriage. So rather than ask it in terms of like, should Judaism writ large uh, incorporate gay marriage? Let me ask you if, you know, if I were a young Jewish individual who came to you as a rabbi for advice and I said, look, I'm gay. I know that I'm gay. I want to be openly gay. My community is not, um, does not condone, you know, being gay or having gay marriage or things like that. What would the kind of advice be that you would give for someone in that sort of situation? That's a funny question you ask, because that was a big question, uh, not the marriage specifically uh, when I got there um, uh, to my synagogue, uh, but I was asked, um, you know, I was told up front that we had a lot of gay members. Uh, would I be okay with someone who is gay leading services, receiving an aliyah, which is an honorific um, to get called up to the Torah or serving on the board? And I, I said no. 
and then there was this you know silence for a bit and i said why should i have a problem and that led to a you know bit of a chuckle um you know what i can say is it's hard for me to give advice to people so as far as that goes you know we had you know several lbgt members in our synagogue as far as i could tell you know people were happy people were comfortable and you know, normally, I, I wouldn't say like an argument from silence is people didn't complain. Uh, but if you're in a synagogue and you're doing something wrong, rest assured, people are going to say something. Um, you know, that, yeah. that's not a concern we have. Um, you know, but the gay marriage wasn't legal when I started. Uh, it became legal in New York after I was there, and I had actually written a blog post, uh, my private one, that argued that Orthodox Jews should not oppose legalizing same-sex marriage. Um, Largely for the you know, same religious freedom thing where, you know, just as you don't want the state to impose their values on you, you shouldn't impose your values on the state. So if you want to advocate for, you know, religious understandings, like go ahead. But I felt it was wrong to say, well, this goes against our religion and therefore you can't either. Uh, in terms of if someone were to come up to me and say, you know, what should I do? I'm not sure what I would like. First off, when it would come to any sort of pastoral counseling, and I don't mean this as a cop out, it's really individualized to the person because every individual has their own um, uh, own struggles, and every person deals with uh, things differently. If I didn't know a person well, I may not answer, or I may refer them to someone who would know these things better. Uh, and thankfully, I do know people who have you know much. Um, uh, much more experience with certain types of questions. I've been very fortunate that way. Like I know what my limits are. Um, you know, if someone asked a straight up question about what's permitted and what's per, uh, prohibited, my own understanding of Jewish law is that the actual gay marriage itself is prohibited, both for men and for women. Um, I can go into the you know sources in terms of why. What that means for people's relationships, it's hard for me to say. Um, you know, there was like I you know, if uh, let's say a couple that was um, civilly married, gay couple that was civilly married, wanted to um, adopt a child and wanted to convert the child to Judaism, I would not have a problem with that sort of conversion. Um, because, you know, I can say, look, even if, say, this marriage might break Jewish law, that doesn't necessarily negate or throw away everything else part of Torah. And also, you know, I don't know what people are doing behind closed doors. I pretty much don't want to. Um, but I can say, you know, at least from my own synagogue, I would not feel comfortable acknowledging such a marriage as a marriage because in an Orthodox synagogue that, you know, when we try to follow Jewish law to celebrate something that violates, you know, what I consider to be Jewish law, I don't think would necessarily be proper. That doesn't mean that we wouldn't necessarily welcome them into the synagogue or other ways, but there would, I would think, be that understanding of, you know, here's, you know, Here's where, you know, the four cubits of Jewish law, in my opinion, are whoever the rabbi is. Here's the lines. Anything within the box, I'm OK with. But here are the lines and anything outside, we're not going to be OK with. Now, is that going to work for everyone? Probably not. It will probably work for some, but not everyone. And I think that would have to be on a case by case basis as well. Um you know, I know pulpit rabbis, you know, you know, joke about, you know, it's impossible to please everyone. Uh, but I do think that if you have a um, 
consistent and coherent standard, people will be more amenable to following along. Meaning if it's arbitrary or people can't understand what you're doing, they're not going to follow as much or they'll say, well, you're motivated by this or you're motivated by that. But if you can you know, cite chapter verse and over time people know where you're coming from, you know, I, I think that at least on a communal level, people will be more receptive and maybe more okay with it, even if they don't necessarily like the answer, because there would still be that sense of, hey, we're all following the same rules. I'm not being tar- you know, singled out for something or other. I guess I just don't understand. And I think this gets to the heart of our, our difference here on the issue of authority. To me, the right answer would seem to be, well, if you acknowledge that people can have healthy functional gay relationships but the law prohibits them to get married why not change the law i I don't understand and is is there even a mechanism in place for y'all to effectively revise that law so that is a major 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 question um that you know a lot of the halakhic process series like really dealt with um and for that it's a matter of a question of authority uh there are some people today who uh how to put this so according to you know one approach, let's say the Maimonidean approach, the last authority uh, or body that had an authority to make real universal changes to Jewish law was you know say in the times of the Talmud, and even there, like there there were things that sages in the Talmud were not able to overturn decisions that were made before them. Minimally, we would need a Sanhedrin, a Supreme Court sitting in Israel. Uh, don't get started about the politics that would be involved in trying to reconstitute that. People did try. It didn't go anywhere. Um, but there are people who say that um, we'll try to come up with some other reason for it. Uh, there was uh, a wonderful piece a while back by Daniel Gordas on the idea of cognitive dissonance in Judaism, where you know I mentioned that people will do whatever it is that they want anyway. And a lot of times the distinction is to what lengths are you going to do to try to say, I'm going to be Jewish and I'm still going to psychologically think that I'm okay. Because you know there are a lot of people who do things that they shouldn't do. And some people are just okay with it. Uh, in my own synagogue, you know, there may have been a heterosexual couple that was living together before marriage, technically violated Jewish law, didn't really bother them, you know, so much either. If anyone asked me, you know, Rabbi, can I do this? I probably would say no, Um, you know, just like with the other things. Now, in terms of can you wave a magic wand to make it okay? Well, then the question is, are you following, say, um, a legal mechanism? And what is your goal by say, well, it's okay. And I think a lot of times it's just a way to resolve that cognitive dissonance of saying, I want to do certain things, but I also want to have, you know, this personal sense of being a Jew in good standing. And therefore, I want some way to say, well, some rabbi to sign off on it and say, well, you know, this is okay now. Uh, There's... um, a major nuclear option I want to throw in uh, called Hora'at Sha'a, uh-huh. which is like uh, exigent circumstances, where there are certain times where, you know, some someone can make a decision, you know, game time decision, you know, push the emergency panic button. This is OK because of some, you know, pressing need. And despite the wide ranging, you know, authority that that might be able to provide, even that people don't like doing. And I think my own understanding is because even that requires cognitive dissonance. Um, I employed that once in my own shul in a situation, but I was fine saying what we did wasn't technically correct by the letter of Jewish law, 
but we did it in such and such a case because we didn't want to embarrass someone. But even that acknowledgement okay. of what we're doing is technically wrong is something that people, even that people don't like dealing with. So, you know, they would rather come up with some convoluted logic to say it's okay because they don't want to live with that dissonance because nothing is stopping people from doing whatever it is that they want to do anyway. Right. So when you talk about Jewish I mean, law changing, for example, because right, their communities well, have laws that, that prohibit their lifestyle choices, right? Well, so, in which case you just like find a different community, but to say like, I want to be in like this community on my state though, right? Um, Reality, like, like I said, it's much so I, easier to, you know, change in the religion, you know, or find a different, you know, uh, religious community than otherwise. But yeah, I think I mean, that may not be that true for a lot of people though, if their families are closely connected to one religious community, right? You're you're risking a lot of um being excluded from from a lot of groups you might care about potentially mm -hmm. if you make a break, especially if you make a break like that over a controversial issue like because you're gay or something. So I guess I'm just oh. this this to me I think highlights where I do think there remains in my mind a legitimate distinction between religious and secular ethics. This idea in religious ethics that there has to be someone endowed with a certain kind of authority to change the rules to me is not the way it works in secular ethics at all it is true that you could press that infinite regress of well who you know how do you justify this claim and this claim and this claim but i think the ultimate point where you're going to reasonably end those regressions for a secular ethics is not with because Maimonides says so it's going to be because this argument that was put forward seems definitive it seems to make the best possible case and we could debate over you know seems to whom and such like mm -hmm. that um but i still think that that the, there's a fundamental difference there that then plays out in the form of if somebody puts forward a new argument in the modern age and they're you know and nobody relatively in terms of authority but their argument is extremely strong that can be taken as authoritative in the sense that it will allow us to revise our sort of modern secular ethical frameworks and that won't be viewed as some sort of cheating or sort of making things the way you want them to be to avoid cognitive dissonance the way that you were describing though i also do i, I i'm a little skeptical of the idea that like what's going on there in a lot of cases is people trying to avoid cognitive dissonance as opposed to trying to bring judaism in line with what they see as uh modern improvements in ethical understanding Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, your, your statements are, are well said, and I think definitely reflect, you know, the different point of origin for sources. And as you know, you said, you know, at some point you asked, like, what's a convincing argument? How do you define all of these things? And that's where, you know, that's where I think I made my you know main point of distinction is fundamentally, you know, they're they're the fund ah, the underlying premises of the religion and the sec and the secular ethics i think are very similar it's just you've got many 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 more steps in there to deal with whereas it's a much more direct line in religion uh, I will say also that when it comes to uh, Judaism and change, uh, this is an area where people are comically inconsistent about how. Um, and I think part of the difference is less about the ethical side as much as the deontological approach uh, by means of looking at um, 
you know, the rules and falling within rules like a legal system, uh, more along the lines of, you know, we've got in the U.S. certain laws until Congress decides that they're no longer laws um, or something's mm-hmm. constitutional until the Supreme Court says it isn't. And that's what we're waiting for. Um, you know, when it comes to like, can other things change? Yeah. I mean, it's even within the Orthodox world, sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say don't. Uh, and at the same time, even in the more progressive side, the ones who will hold of, say, a quote, living Torah, of this constantly evolving Torah have no problem mm-hmm. judging, you know, when, you know, let's say a parochial side decides to invent a new stringency and they say, well, that's not Torah because it doesn't say so in the text. Well, you know, if it's a living mm-hmm. Torah, then it's got to evolve in ways you don't like also, right? You know, because, you know, that that's your cost of relativism. You know, if it's going to, it's going to move, well, then that's okay. And then that's okay. And then you lose that capacity to say, this is authentic, this is right, and this is wrong. Um, I think people really want to have it both ways on that too. Um, in terms of the infusing Jewishness and bringing it to them, I think that also um, assumes a very big question of the extent to which Judaism is anthropocentric. And that is it about the people and trying to get the religion to meet the people, or is it trying to have people conform to the standard of the religion? Uh, I wrote a piece for an online site called The Lair House on uh, does Torah care about your feelings? And I gave plenty of examples on both sides where there are times when Jewish law, you know, it, by Jewish law at this place, um, I'm referring to like Talmudic law even, does respond affirmatively and takes people's uh, feelings into account and changes certain laws in order to accommodate that. And there are a whole bunch of times when it doesn't. So, you know, just to say, yes, it is, or, you know, yes, it does, or yes, it doesn't, that I think misses the point, um, you know, because if the main point of Judaism is, well, you know, I've got this concept and I want things things, you know, along, you know, to fit into my worldview, then you get into sort of the hyper individualized religion that we saw a lot in the, you know, early uh, 60s came out a lot more, was a lot more prominent back then. And this thing Mm -hmm. of religious individuation, which the Bible itself isn't a huge fan of, because taking that to the logical extreme, there's an idiom in the book of Judges called Isha Yashar Be'enav Ya'aseh, where people just did whatever was right in their own eyes. And that led to uh, case of mm-hmm. uh, Pilegish Begiva, which for those unfamiliar with the Hebrew term, it involved the gang rape of a concubine and mailing her dismembered corpse across the country. You know, that's what happens when, well, everyone's just going to do however things are in their, those terms. And then you're not really following a religion as much as, you know, you're just following yourself, but making your own desires into a religion and, you know, higher level of significance, which people do. Uh, you may be familiar, Robert Bella, the sociologist in Habits of the Heart, had... um uh, he interviewed someone named Sheila and describing about her religious behaviors. And she says, basically, she does a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And she called it Sheilaism, uh, which is kind of, you know, how a lot of people approach religion today, too. But there's also, I think, a difference of, you know, saying, here's what I do and here's what I decide to do and saying, I expect the religion to come to me and to make space for me in my you know, and, you know, however it is I want to practice or believe, I demand that the community or the religion conform to include me as opposed to the other way around. Meaning if someone just did whatever they wanted and did not make those demands of the community to say, accept me who I am on my terms, uh, I think that would be very different. Uh, There was a classic story of Hillel where someone had come up to him and said, convert me on condition, like teach me the whole Torah while standing on one foot. 
And Shammai, who he went to first, threw him out. Mm -hmm. And Hillel said, you know, that which is distasteful to you, don't do to someone else. The rest, go learn the rest is commentary, something like that. Uh, And the way that I always Mm -hmm. understood that was, you know, he was telling this person who was coming to him and saying, teach me Torah on my terms. And his response is, it's not all about you. Right. And I think that's true of pretty much any community, or at least, you know, who has a right to go to a community and say, here's who I am. I demand to be accepted as I am on my terms. You know, some we're also very inconsistent about when we say, yes, you know, we're going to accommodate in West. Yes. Or or no, we don't. So, yeah, and I think this highlights. I think this highlights a lot of real tensions that secular ethicists deal with, too, about individual uh, versus community and how to balance um, the well-being of of groups versus the well-being of individuals and what obligations the group owes to the individual and vice versa. So I don't think these are problems that are, um, you know, only issues for religion. I think my concern is that um, in addressing those issues, I worry about it leaning a little bit too much towards authority in ways that uh, you know, for example, one other running running short on time here, but I did want to also get your thoughts on the implications for this kind of authority approach in religion, broadly speaking, and the ways that I see it some sometimes priming individuals to be targets of conspiracy theories like QAnon. There's a, a real problem of QAnon kind of running rampant in evangelical Christianity right now, um, and I'm curious if you worry about that or see any sorts of similar conspiratorial kinds of thinkings in your own communities that maybe in some way are impacted by people's deference to authority? Uh, it's definitely happened. Um, there's been rampant Trumpism in certainly some of the more parochial uh, sides of the Jewish community. Uh, among friends of mine, less so, um, unless there's certain people who just watch Fox News all the time and that's your only uh, window to the world. Well, then, yeah, but then you don't really think it's a conspiracy to you. This is news um, amongst most of you know, I do have some friends who voted Trump for whatever reason, but not you know in that conspiracy theory. I don't think that that's purely a matter of authoritarian as much as searching for someone who says what you want to say and then relying on them. Uh, there was an idiom I used uh, as a parallel. There was an idiom I used once in a blog post that I called recursive recognition in the rabbinate. Um, so you, know, you had mentioned about credentialism and stuff like that and expertise. So one easy mm-hmm. way uh, to um, you know, sort of gain notoriety is you have a good PR firm. So let's say you have a community that wants to believe something. You find someone, you prop up that person as an authority, or let's let's use rabbi as an example. You have a community that wants something. You prop up a rabbi who tells you exactly what you want to hear. Then you say, well, ah, you see, the rabbi says so. And then you just have more people pumping up the rabbi, which makes that rabbi seem bigger. And thus you have this recursive recognition of, People will endorse the people who say what, you know, he'll just parrot back what they want to hear. And then the more people who follow, it's like, oh, you see, you've got this great rabbi or this great figure who's got so many people Mm -hmm. behind them. I think that's what happened more than anything else, where people got caught up in this and just went along with it because they found someone who was saying all the things that they wanted to believe, basically, from enough of uh, or from enough authoritative sources. And then you just had this, you know, social networking feedback loop of um, the same ideas just get pinged back and forth. And then you've got this artificial consensus because your social network might be so limited. But if the same five people you speak to every day all say the same thing, of course, you think it's normal and 
natural. Um, and then you just, mm -hmm. you know, whoever confirms your biases, well, that person must be the authority. So, mm -hmm. you know, in this regard, I don't think it's as simple as authoritarianism as, oh, we're just going to follow the leader because someone had to choose to follow that person. And then you have to think about the dynamics why. And at least with the American mm -hmm. politics, I don't think it's just as unilateral as, you know, let's say, you know, I, I, I was about to make an analogy to Catholicism and stop myself because I could be wrong. I don't know enough about Catholicism to speak about it. Um, but it's not like, you know, you've got some divine appointment of someone. There is when it comes to this authoritarianism, there's a lot of, I, I think, recursiveness that goes on about each side propping up the other for their own gains. Mm hmm. Fair enough. All right. I think that's a good point for us to wrap up on. And I really appreciate you uh, being such a sport on this. And I apologize that unfortunately I have to torture you now. Oh. So this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. All right. So for folks who are not familiar, the enlightening round, I'm going to give you a series of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only two options. You cannot hedge. You don't get to define what you mean by real. It's just real or not real. Do you understand? Yes. And can, I can't say it the outline okay. reality doesn't exist either. Okay? Fine. Well, the first question <laughs> is, is the external world real? Yes. Okay, great. So, uh, sorry, I actually apologize. I, oh, I screwed that one up. Is anything real? That was That's actually the first one. I haven't screwed yes. that up in a while. Yes. Okay, so let's find out what's real. So the external world is real. Yes. Uh, are colors real? Yes. Is phenomenal consciousness real? I'm going, I'm not sure what that means, but I'm going to say yes. Inner world of experience kind of thing going on there. Oh. Um, okay, yeah, I, I'd say that's real. Uh, is free will real? Yes. Are selves or persons real? Yes. Genders? Yes. Races? Mm. Uh, God, I have no idea. I, I can't pass on these, can I? Uh, nope, wow. No passing. Ah, <laughs> oh, geez. Um, uh, I have no idea how to answer that one. Um, yeah, it's like whatever I say, like, is it biologically, sociologically? Uh, no, no, no. Really not. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, uh, I'm going to say de facto, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. All right, real. Species? Yes. Okay. Morality? Uh, I'll say yes. Given that those are my only two options, I'm going to say yes, morality exists and is okay. real. Right. Meaning, what do you mean, like right and wrong? No, like you have a right to freedom of speech or something like that. Oh, uh, those things, I would say, yes, those are real. Okay, real. Knowledge. Yes, real. God or gods? Yes. Real. Okay. Society. Yes, real. Uh, money. Real. Numbers. Real and imaginary. Uh, okay. Fictional characters. Not real. Holes, like a hole in the ground. <laughs> uh, real. Okay. Chairs. 
Real. Okay. Sandwiches. Real. Science. Real. Natural laws. Not real. Mm, beauty. Real. Love. Real. Causality. Real. And finally, time. Real. Okay, you survived. How do you feel? I feel fine. I mean, there were a couple of them I would love to, you know, qualify and like, but I understand the questions. I also understand the thinking behind the questions I find amusing. Um, but yes, know that I would be more than happy to defend any one of those positions. Okay, great. Well, that'll be good for right. when people cancel you later. Fantastic. Uh, so thank you. I don't think that's going to yeah, happen been- because I'm not important enough to be canceled. So, yeah, we'll keep it that way. No one has ever been canceled because of the lightning round there is at best been some ironic canceling that has gone on uh-huh. so. okay i can live with oh, that okay. all right well, thank Just you what? so much for having me on this was so much fun and glad we were able I'm to hash this out yeah me too i was a really good chat and, and i definitely recommend folks read the letter wiki if you haven't do you want to let folks know where they can find your other materials uh, mostly on my website, joshuter.com, or follow me on Twitter at juter. That's where most of my stuff is. I happen to do a weekly uh, podcast on Midrash these days, but I also have a lot of archives, uh, both writing mostly on Jewish law and society stuff. Um, yeah, those are probably the best places to find me. And if anyone has any questions, I'm always happy to ask to the best of my ability, time permitting. So feel free DMs are open. You can also email me via my website. Happy to hear from you. And yeah. Thank you very much again. No, great. Thanks very much. It was a fun chat. Indeed. Have a great night. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our new patrons, Peter Kimpton. And surprise announcement, next week's episode is Anathem Dune and the Ethics of Starting a Commune. A little bit of Philosophers in Space crossover there. And as always, all the thanks to our Archon level and Archduke patrons. Thanks to Fix the Vote, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence made my pussy throb. I want to be the tempeh in a Foucault and Camus sandwich. Chad T, Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our top-level uh, Big Easy Blasphemy, the creepy weird eyes that stare at me, and our all-time top-level patron, Dave Maslich. Thank you all so very much. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Please follow us on Twitter, at ETVPod. And... If you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to new episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content, which is going to be restarting soon. Most of all, no matter how you feel right now, remember, you are the void and the void is you. 